Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The New York State Assembly has released its long-awaited report on an impeachment inquiry into former Governor Andrew Cuomo. It finds that Cuomo oversaw a toxic workplace where he sexually harassed multiple women and that he used staff to write and edit a $5 million memoir at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in the state. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. The report concludes that former Governor Cuomo engaged in multiple instances of sexual harassment, created a hostile work environment, and engaged in sexual misconduct. It also finds that Cuomo used state resources and property by directing his top staff to help him write and edit a book on his leadership during the pandemic. Those transgressions would be a violation of the state's public officer's law. The Assembly impeachment inquiry also looked into Cuomo's controversial handling of nurse home policy during the height of the pandemic, it finds that the former governor was not fully transparent regarding the number of nursing home residents who died as a result of COVID-19. Cuomo resigned in August, a day after the Assembly announced it was poised to begin impeachment proceedings. Assembly Judiciary Committee member Phil Steck says the report shows there was enough evidence to impeach Cuomo had he remained in office. He thought the rules didn't apply to him because he was so powerful and people were afraid of him. And at the end of the day, it eventually caught up with him. The report mirrors the finding of the state's attorney general's office. It also found that the former governor sexually harassed and in one case sexually assaulted 11 women and that Cuomo and his top aides undercounted the number of nursing home deaths in the pandemic by 50 percent. The Assembly's investigation was conducted by an outside law firm, Davis, Polk & Wardwell, LLP. Lawyers there reviewed hundreds of thousands of pages of documents, including photographs, text messages, emails, recordings of phone calls, social media accounts, and other sources. More than 200 witnesses gave interviews and depositions. Cuomo continues to deny all of the charges, saying he did not sexually harass anyone and that his staff volunteered their own personal time to help him with this book. He said the state's AG, Tish James, who is now running for governor, issued her reports as a political tool to ruin him. Cuomo spokesman Rich Azapardi says any report that uses the attorney general's politically biased investigation as a basis is going to be equally flawed. Azapardi also criticized assembly members for being hypocritical, saying they also use their staff for political work. Assemblyman Steck says lawmakers have rules and regulations that they must follow when their staff uses personal time to work on their campaigns. He says if a legislator were to use their employees and state resources to write a for-profit book in the manner portrayed in the Assembly's report, then they would likely be in serious legal trouble. He was using his office all day 
for the purpose of writing a book. If I did that for my political campaign, I'd be indicted. Assemblyman Steck says he can't speculate on whether the report's findings could lead to criminal charges against the former governor. He says that's up to the local DAs. Cuomo is already facing a misdemeanor charge over allegations that he inappropriately groped a staffer's breasts. He's due to appear in Albany City Court on January 7th. There's also an ongoing federal probe into the administration's nursing home policies. Blair Horner with the Government Reform Group, the New York Public Interest Research Group, says the report underlines the need in New York for an independent ethics commission. The state's Joint Commission on Public Ethics was largely viewed as controlled by Cuomo. We drive slower on the thruway when there are speed traps. My guess is the former governor and his staff might have behaved differently if they knew that the state's ethics watchdog was not only going to bark but bite. Governor Kathy Hochul has replaced several Cuomo appointees on the Ethics Commission, and last week it voted to rescind Cuomo's book deal. But Horner says Hochul and the state legislature need to do more to ensure an independent ethics review board going forward. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, as we just heard from Karen DeWitt, a long-awaited report is out from the State Assembly Judiciary Committee on an impeachment inquiry into former Governor Andrew Cuomo. And the investigation found, quote, overwhelming evidence that former New York Governor Cuomo engaged in sexual harassment and ordered state workers to help produce his book during work hours. The report also found that Cuomo's executive chamber, quote, substantially revised the state report to exclude deaths of nursing home residents and hospitals to boost Cuomo's reputation. In March, the Assembly Judiciary Committee hired a Manhattan law firm to investigate whether there were grounds to impeach Cuomo. The Democratic governor resigned in August to avoid a likely impeachment trial. The statement coming from Rich as a party, your former student and the spokesperson for Andrew Cuomo, as it says in this release, any report that uses the attorney general's politically biased investigation as a basis is going to be equally flawed. To date, we have not been allowed the opportunity to review evidence in the assembly's possession despite requests to do so and due process was certainly not afforded here. The governor continues to push back hard against what appears to be overwhelming evidence. And even if you read the report, which I did, quoted statements by him acknowledging at least in one incident it was inappropriate. So what happens now? Well, you have to remember the context. And the context in this case is that they are scared to death the establishment that Cuomo's going to get back in it. And as I often talk about Stalin's toe moving when Khrushchev was thought he was dead. That's what they worry about. They're worried about the fact that he's going to get back in it. And if you know anything about Andrew Cuomo, and I know quite a bit, he will have the motivation to get back in it. He's not done. Now, that is not an admiring statement, because I think there are many times that he shows really thuggish behavior. 
Nevertheless, I know him well enough to know that he is not going to give up, and they know it too. And so, as each nail goes into this political coffin, you better believe that that's what it's all about, that they don't want to see him resuscitated. Let's put it that way. And if you know him, you know that he will absolutely take it to the end. Well, and WAMC ended up in this report under the heading public statements by then-Governor Cuomo. Your interviews with the governor were used here, where you asked the governor about the book. He talked about thinking about writing the book. And then he sort of downplayed his personal gain for the book, reading from the report. When asked if he, quote, got a lot of money for doing the book, the governor said, well, only if I sell a lot of copies, which is not true. No, I mean, apparently he got $5 million, and I did ask him the question. And by the way, you can give me a lot of credit for asking that question, but I had no idea. I just joshing around asking right. that question. And apparently it turns out to be a lot more serious a question than I had thought. Yeah. So who beyond those of us that are politically interested are going to read the full report? Very few. And most of what we're being told is what we already knew. So, you know, this is just one more report that will substantiate what we have learned about the governor, that he was maybe sexually inappropriate with some of these people. He denies it. And in this country, you get the protection of the presumption of innocence. Look, he and I are not friends. There was a point at which he was on with me, and then he decided he didn't want to go on anymore because he had basically foolishly answered a couple of questions which got him into a lot of hot water. But there is a context here, which is that this political group, the establishment, doesn't want to see Cuomo resuscitated. Well, how about this? Governor Kathy Hochul is maintaining a healthy lead over her toughest challenger, State Attorney General Tish James, in her bid to win a term in her own right. Next year, this is a new Data for Progress poll that was shared with Politico. Hochul leads James 36 to 22 when the poll includes former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who resigned in August. When he is omitted from the poll, the 15 percent support he received is fairly evenly divided among Hochul, James, and others trailing the front runners. Without Cuomo in the mix, Hochul leads James by a 39 to 24 margin with 9% of respondents supporting city public advocate Jamani Williams. Your thoughts? It's way too early. I believe that there is going to be a huge number of people in this primary. And a lot of people don't even know who the attorney general is yet. She's done a terrific job. She goes after people who need going after. She's been terrific when it comes to holding Donald Trump accountable. And right now she's considering yet another lawsuit. So once all of this comes out, and of course there is the question of color. James is very likely to get a huge part of the black vote in New York, which is why, of course, Hochul chose Mr. Benjamin as the lieutenant governor candidate the next time around, because he is, of course, black. So there's a lot to go here. Sure, Hochul is in the lead, and I have certainly heard from people who don't like the idea that there's any kind of contest here. But there is, and we'll see where it all comes out. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartoff.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A new report is highlighting racial inequities in the nation's health care system. We get more from the Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas. Lead author David Radley, a senior scientist for tracking health system performance for the Commonwealth Fund, says researchers looked for health equity but found none. The scorecard finds that health equity does not exist in the U.S. Even in states with relatively strong performing health systems, people of color, particularly black, Latino, and Native Americans, have a higher mortality, less access to care, and are more likely to receive lower quality care compared to white people. The study examined data gathered in 2019 before the pandemic hit full force, along with other data collected in 2020. Dr. Lori Zephyrin, Vice President of Advancing Health Equity with the fund, says disparities appear to have gotten worse. Uh, I think for many, the pandemic has highlighted the also the, the impact of, of structural racism and how you know, not having, um, you know, access to uh, communities uh, that are, for example, have adequate uh, housing um, or having access to health insurance or having the ability to work from home or other inequities in uh, the social determinants or drivers of health really impact um, health and health and health care. Um, you know, we've also seen with the with the pandemic also just um, strained health care infrastructure, um, you know, significant income impacts and uh, really worsening of, of social determinants of health in terms of the economic inequalities, in addition to some of the care delivery challenges as well. New York, Massachusetts and Connecticut are among six states with health systems that ranked above the national average for all racial and ethnic groups studied. But the scorecard reveals that even in high-performing states, racial and ethnic health disparities can be dramatic. In Massachusetts and Connecticut, where white residents receive some of the best care in the country, the report found many people of color receive far worse quality of care. Commonwealth Fund President Dr. David Blumenthal. There's little doubt that the pandemic has exacerbated these inequities and other weaknesses in our health care system. Structural racism and generations of disinvestment in communities of color are chief among the many factors contributing to these pervasive issues. If we want to get the pandemic under control and mitigate longstanding injustices in our healthcare system and beyond, we need to dismantle the racist policies and practices that have led us here and create a truly equitable healthcare system. There's a link to the report and scorecard at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Officials in the North Country and New York are praising Canada's decision to remove requirements that citizens traveling out of the country on short trips must produce a negative COVID test within 72 hours of their return to Canada. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley explains. Canada opened its land border to vaccinated travelers on August 9th, but all travelers must prove they have been vaccinated and must provide a negative COVID test taken within 72 hours of arriving at the border. Friday afternoon, Canadian Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos officially announced that policy will change. As November 30th, 2021, fully vaccinated Canadian citizens permanent residents and persons registered under the Indian Act who take short trips outside of the country for 72 hours or less will no longer be required to complete a molecular COVID-19 test before re-entering Canada. This change will apply to trips 
both by land and by air. I would also like to note that we will be reevaluating the entry requirements for American citizens coming to Canada and will provide an update on any adjustments at a later date. North Country Chamber of Commerce President Gary Douglas says the Canadian government is responding to concerns about burdensome regulations sooner than expected. If there was going to be a first step, this is the first step we would want. It's finally going to allow that casual travel by Canadians that the testing requirement really made fairly impossible because of the cost and the process that Canadians had to go through. Now those day trips, uh, those short visits uh, for a couple of days to recreate, to shop for Christmas will be practical because there won't be the cost of that test uh, as long as they're here for no more than 72 hours. They can do what they've always enjoyed doing down here and turn around and go home. The town of Plattsburgh has numerous retail businesses and the region's largest mall, which attract Canadian shoppers. Supervisor Michael Cashman says it's a step in the right direction. It will certainly provide more opportunities for our local businesses uh, to bring in shoppers, be it for the day visit or those, say, three-day visits. We are not completely to where we need to be, but it is heartening to see us moving forward. Supervisor Cashman adds it's now time to create parity for all travelers. Lifting of the testing requirements for short-term visitors based upon the decision of the Canadian government is very welcome news. Now, what we need to see, though, is parity in our border crossing policies for Americans to go north into Canada, because both of our countries benefit from having the uh, day trippers or the short-term visitors. You know, we both gain socially, culturally, and economically uh, in our communities that abut the border. Again, Gary Douglas. Nothing is more welcome than allowing the casual visitation from the Canadian side to the U.S. side. Uh, And then we all look forward to that next phase being us being able to go in the other direction. But certainly the most important thing for us was to start having that social and economic connection again with our neighbors. Canadian officials said beginning November 30th, there will be very few exemptions for non-vaccinated individuals to travel. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. With us this week on the Legislative Gazette is Dr. Lynn Parodnik, medical marijuana doctor in New York. Welcome back, Lynn. Thanks, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll start first with a, with an update. Where are we in the legalization process? I know one thing is for sure that starting in December, you'll be able to grow marijuana. Yeah, things are changing. Our new governor is enthusiastic. And as of December, patients will be able to grow six plants, three in the flowering stage and three in the dormant stage. Also, if you have a caregiver situation, they're allowed to grow for five other people. So things are opening up a bit. 
at a personal level, I would say. Also, I was at the MJ Biz Conference, and there were a lot of seed salesmen there. I noticed a huge difference in what booths were up there and what they were selling compared to a few years ago. So seeds are very hot, all kinds of heavy machinery to do cultivation lights. There are a lot of them. They even had the vape pen people from China because there's one town where they make all these vape pens, and they're back. So things are opening up. As far as legalization, the whole textbook has not yet been written, but they say coming soon. So I guess we just have to take them by their word, and we shall see. Right now, there are a lot of meetings going on in local towns, opting in, opting out. Long Island has really decided this is not for them. And then Westchester has been, there are some towns opting in, some out. So it's a very interesting time. And I encourage people, if they have a chance to go to one of the town meetings, go. Because it's a really fascinating intersection of time. Anyone can speak. So at these meetings, you generally have retired police officers who who do not like cannabis, believe it's a gateway drug. Then there are patients who come and speak and say, this should be available for everybody. What are we doing by making it so limited? Let's keep it regulated, safe and clean, and everybody should really have a chance to be able to work with this. Let me ask you about the seeds. You mentioned seeds that you saw recently, you know, are hot. But that was the big question when it came to growing marijuana. Where would you get the seeds? So these folks that you're seeing at an exposition, what does that mean ultimately, that there'll be seeds for sale at recreational marijuana shops? Even online, now it is legal to send seeds in the mail. So there are a lot of companies up and running. If you do a Google search and get into some of the cannabis websites, you'll be able to find seeds. People generally used to get them from Holland in the past. The quality is, without doubt, very good, and it was very easy to do. Now there are companies developing locally, and that's what their business is going to be. Yeah, and speaking of business, we know that it's very, very expensive. I think one of the estimates uh, from a lawyer we talked to for the program that you helped connect us to was about a million dollars to get yourself into the marijuana business. And then there was the question of, well, you you shouldn't own the property because you'd have that seized because it's not legal on the federal level. Are we any further along in knowing how people who might not have the means can attain a license to have their own marijuana shop? Well, I would say, oh, yes, there are people who have really been impacted by the arcane drug laws should have a chance, but I have not seen programs out there. I'm seeing a shift in education. In New York, there are a lot of schools. Syracuse is offering Edgar Medgers. A lot of schools are offering education in the cannabis space. But because the banking laws are so crazy, I think it's very, very difficult for a minority person to get the financial backing that they need to be able to do this. And when we talk about a million dollars, that doesn't even include complete build-outs, inventory. I mean, it's very, very expensive. A lot of the towns that are opting out feel, oh, well, later they can always opt in. Well, people who are investing that kind of money are not so excited to go to a place where they're really not wanted. Right. And of course, one of the advantages, I can only guess, is the medical marijuana providers. So some of the big operations like in New York, Vireo or Verilife, these companies that are already set up with medical marijuana operations, we already know they've got different locations picked out. They're ready to go. Even building out some new properties to incorporate both the medical side and the recreational side. So it's the big boys and girls, once again, that win out when it comes to getting these licenses and shops. Sure. Well, 
The proviso with the medical was that when recreation was passed, these dispensaries would be able to get recreation license because running medical has been very difficult in New York. They all lose money every month. The program really wasn't fully supported. The products, they could have done much better with the rollout. So there's a lot of things that could have been better. So now it's time to improve them. Well, and then there's, the, of course, the issue of cost and the black market. And it really seems like we whiffed on this one. The idea that not just in New York, but all around the country, if you look at the prices that are out there, you could get it cheaper on the black market still. Absolutely. Also, uh, patients actually go to different states to go shopping. So, for example, an eighth of an ounce of Bud is about $90 in New York. If you go to Cureleaf in Maine, it is $115 for a full ounce. So there's going to be a lot of strange market fluctuations, and where this is all going to settle out, nobody knows. Because if they can afford to sell it to you for $115 an ounce, it really doesn't cost them very much to be doing this. Maine has really nice products. They have indoor grows. There's a lot of illegal grows going on there. There always have been. I have a patient who's 51, and she grew up in Maine when she was 13 years old till she graduated high school. Her after-school job was trimming. Well, and then there's that idea of, as you go state to state, that if you have a medical marijuana ID, it's not something that you can transfer in most cases. Now, you mentioned Maine. They do have an agreement with New York. But even some anecdotal evidence shows that the people in Maine and in New York don't understand what the law is in each state. For example, that there is no expiration date on your marijuana ID. Oh, yeah. This comes up all the time. And each dispensary really has the right to sell to a patient or not. I don't understand. People come in with their New York paperwork. Why are they going to give them a hard time? Now, when we're talking about the black market, California is the classic example. There's so much being grown. I actually read in the Boston Globe that in Mexico, it's a big deal to get California bud now, which Uh, I found fascinating. We've been speaking with Dr. Lynn Parodnik, a medical marijuana doctor here in New York State. Lynn, we always appreciate you taking the time to talk about this subject that continues to evolve. Thank you, David, for having me, and it's always a pleasure to be here. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2148. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at the same time. For more news on New York State government and politics or the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.